Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm really delighted to welcome Phil Jones, editor of The Jeremy Vine Show on Radio 2, which has more than 7 million listeners a week. Phil worked on a community play bus and as a gardener before training as a journalist, but has now worked at the BBC for 30 years. He talked to me about his life-threatening experience of COVID, how his work has changed in the pandemic, and what the BBC can do in the age of culture wars. Well, I'm very pleased to have you on the podcast, Phil. You've you've been kind enough to have me on your programme many times, so it's brilliant to be able to turn the tables and ask you some questions. Well, you're always you've all whenever you come on, I always you've always got something to say which everybody wants to listen to, and I I always think, oh my god, I've just agreed with every single thing Christina said. So when you said, can I come on your podcast? podcast I had to say yes well I'm really some justice I'm really really pleased it's really kind of you and lovely to hear that and you'll probably get sacked for saying that but let's hope you don't (laughs) in terms of agreeing with the guest (laughs) now as you know this is a a podcast looking at work life during and after this pandemic and yours was affected quite dramatically literally on the first day of lockdown can you can you tell us what happened well yes we we listened to Boris Johnson announce lockdown on the Monday. I remember waking up on the Tuesday and my wife saying, I think I've got a temperature. And I said, oh, well, I better not get, do you want me to look after you? And she said, you have a temperature too. I don't know how she knew, but uh, I did. I took, the, I took my temperature. Julie dropped the very good but old-fashioned mercury thermometer on the floor and broke that. <laughs> Um, and the first week I was fine because we were told, weren't we, that uh, most of us who are fit and healthy and not too old will just have mild symptoms. So I, mm. I kind of thought I'd be better by Monday, but by the weekend it just got worse. Second week it just got worse still, and into the third week I thought, oh my god, if, if, if I. I've got all the symptoms, you know, breathlessness, high fever, sort of drifting in and out of consciousness. Um, if this gets worse, then I really am a goner. I mean, I wasn't, I was hovering between hospital and just being fairly bad. Um, and I actually thought next week, if I'm worse, um, we're going to have to be, you know, it's not looking good. Yeah. But I, I reached a plateau and um, didn't get worse and gradually got better. And here I am. Thank God for that. I mean, you, you said you wrote a beautiful piece about it in the New Statesman. And you said you felt as if there was something inside your body trying to kill you. I mean, that sounds really terrifying. W- were you kind of having those um, deathbed thoughts about your life? And, uh, you know. Well, yes, you do. I mean, I'm I'm a pretty fit and healthy person, and you're just. I mean, people say it's just like flu, 
it might be for some people what, what I flu can be pretty bad can't it proper flu mm. that we all probably get once every 10 to 20 years when it's really bad and we feel terrible this was much worse than that um and yes it all the different symptoms coming together I mean I still they say it has a long tail and I still feel I've still got hardly any sense of smell really uh probably 50 percent of taste and probably I'm not quite where I was beforehand I don't feel the same levels of energy that I used to enjoy and this is four months later. And I, I feel I'm one of the lucky people. You know, I know, I don't think I'm going to, I mean, I, maybe the taste and smell won't come back. But I don't think I'm somebody who's, who's going to have this serious long-term effects with my lungs or anything else. So, um, but it, it's just, it's not nice. That's really dreadful, really dreadful in terms of taste and smell. Because I don't know about you, but for me eating and drinking is such a huge part of the pleasure of life has that had an effect on the quality it doesn't of your seem life? to affect your appetite um taste is a funny thing i mm. and it's hard to gauge uh it really is hard to gauge um but it doesn't affect doesn't seem to affect my appetite that much right. but I'm, I'm conscious that I mean, they say getting old, you never, food doesn't taste like it used to. And you, you know, you're, you're not, your taste buds aren't quite as sensitive or as cute as they used to be. Who knows? But cert, I mean, certainly the smell, there's hardly any smell there as, at all. Oh. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I accept all that. I just think I'm lucky to be here. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not feeling sorry for myself or, or even mourning that particularly. You wrote beautifully uh, about a walk with your son in the spring sunshine after you'd recovered your first walk and the exhilaration you felt. And I've certainly had that feeling after a couple of brushes with cancer. Do mm. you think that the experience has changed you? I don't. It's oh, a hard question because I did remember thinking, I'm 61. I didn't really intend to go around this age. Mm. So I did kind of have that thought that I just want to get better. I don't want to die. Mm. I want to see my children grow up. I want to have grandchildren. I want to live. I want to experience life. I mean, I am the sort of person that grasps life. I'm the sort of person who likes to live life to the full. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and grasps all that life has to offer. So um, I think momentarily I, f- I felt that I don't, having recovered, I, I think if I'm honest, probably life just goes on as normal for me. Yeah. <laughs> the intensity, the intensity of the experience. I mean, I remember being in Trafalgar Square actually after I had. Uh, was due to have a big operation the last time I had cancer and just and looking at the fountains and having this incredibly strong feeling that I didn't want to die mm. and you know I, I don't want to die but the intensity of those feelings generally does wear off like most other intense feelings I think 
I am the sort of person who thinks life should be really lived to the full, mm. that every day is a day to cherish, that <laughs> nothing should be wasted. So in a way, I was already there. <laughs> yes, yes. I was well, already I, yeah. this, I was already that person. So uh, it would be hard. I remember on my 50th birthday, one of my best friends made a speech and said, Phil's not really 50, he's 100, because he lives life twice as fast <laughs> as anyone else. And it, there's probably some truth in that. Probably my friends do. I not necessarily think it's entirely a good thing. My daughter said to me the other day, Phil, Dad, you just need to slow down a bit. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be living everything at 100 miles an hour. And I think there's a thought there as well. Worth you do pack more life in it's uh it's yeah it's a tough one isn't it personally I'd rather be in your camp but um mm. it's partly a question of of taste there is a balance it? though isn't there yes I yes I, I suppose there is and I always remember things. I drove my father back to he's he's from the Wirral and about four or five years before he died I didn't know he was going to die but um in his late 70s I drove him up to the Wirral and we just packed we got there before breakfast <laughs> like got up at six were there about 10 had breakfast packed everything in over the 48 hours even climbed his favorite mountain oh. or some of it in in north wales and then got back and he said son that's been a lovely weekend but there was one thing missing i said well dad we did everything what was missing he said just a bit of nothing Doing a bit of nothing. That that was my dad. He did a lot of nothing. But you you do masses of hiking, don't you? So you must get, I know that's sort of vigorous activity, but there must be a bit of a sense of kind of transcendent nothingness when you're on the top of a mountain or whatever. Yes, I think that's why I like taking myself away from everywhere and I yeah oh good you've done your homework I mean that that's I'm a journalist that's what I do I mean I spend a lot of time going to wildernesses and camping in the wild and being in the middle of nowhere usually with my wife or 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 my friends um Mm. and uh, yes that's when I but even then, you know, I like to walk 20 miles that day. Uh, so it's not without its activity <laughs> and its it, um, in huge amount of, you know, yes, never stopping. On the, um, I, I noticed that a lot of the places you, well, places you've written about certainly have been Eastern Europe. And I know your your mother escaped from Czechoslovakia when I think she was only 11, just before yeah. the war started, which must have, I can't begin to imagine what effect that had on your life. But maybe, maybe with that dramatic history, that's part of why you want to pack so much in. What do, you, what do you think the legacy was of your extraordinary history? I know you had relatives who died at Auschwitz and at Tierenstadt. Yes. Which is a... I mean, possibly. I mean, maybe unconsciously that the whole thing about being a survivor, being a COVID survivor, being... My mother was was the sort of person that didn't like to talk about it. So we didn't... Yeah. We were aware of what happened, but we didn't have it pushed into our into our into into our faces it wasn't something Mm. that was we were 
we were I remember talking to my aunt who was the opposite who was nine when two little girls were put on a train and managed to reach England on their own and mm. I remember talking to my aunt in contrast to my mother and I said do you regard yourself as a, survive, a Holocaust survivor? She's every single day of my life. Mm. And I think that's a more common experience. But whether that accounts for my uh, phonetic activity, I don't know. Interesting. I mean, you've clearly got a very global perspective and, and the Jeremy Vine show is very, very strongly focused on politics. And um, it seems that that's kind of the perfect job for you, really, and and that you have a reach that is wider and bigger than most newspapers now, which is quite a thing. Do you feel a strong sense of responsibility as a result of that, or are you kind of used to it now? I think we do. We sit down every morning in our editorial, and like any newspaper or radio programme or TV current affairs, and absolutely take it seriously that we want to deliver something vital and crucial that's happening in the news in an engaging and enlightening and powerful way and it and uh we i think we you know and i think that's why my one of my bosses bob shannon is now number two at the bbc says there's lots of people who work at the bbc and i tell them all after two or three years move on and get another job but there's one exception to that, and that's Bill Jones, who's been doing the same job for 30 years, which is kind of true. And I think I do really regard it as important, feel the responsibility, and um, also, you know, feel it as important today as I've ever felt it. And I think the day I stop feeling that mm. is really the day I should stop doing the job. Because so many people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people listen every day and expect us to deliver something in, in entertain, inform and educate yeah. them about what's going on in the world in, yeah. an, in, in an engaging way. And hopefully we most days we do that. Well, that's an incredible vote of confidence. My God, I don't know. I'm not sure I can think of anyone else who after 30 years, their boss says, yeah, please, you know, just to stay, stay there. Don't move on. That's that's extraordinary. That's also pretty much the Rethian vision, isn't it? I mean, it sounds as though you are a very strong believer in the Rethian vision. Would oh, you say you are? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. certain what they say about good design Good design doesn't need to be redesigned every five or ten years. Mm. If you think about the purpose of the BBC to inform, educate and entertain, that is as as powerful a formula today as it was back in the 20s and 30s when the BBC was first created. And I, I you know, if, if not more important that now. So mm. I think, I mean, whoever whether it was um Lord Reith himself or whoever came up with with that formula is it's incredibly cogent and important isn't it mm, absolutely and and I mean as over the last four years we've both here in the UK and in the US seen a huge amount of division which has been desperately upsetting and uh, and this pandemic has kind of arrived um, on top of all that division but you at the BBC have a duty to provide balance which there's a lot of criticism of it but I think on Jeremy Vine you do that 
very well. And I'm, you know, used to that bracing discipline of being on with people whose views I don't share. And it's good for us. I think it's it's very good for us to listen to other people's views. Do you feel that in in presenting those opposing points of view or other different points of view and different voices that you are able to have an effect on, in fact, something as big as the national conversation? I don't know. Probably. I don't, I don't, I'm not somebody who would, I don't know, I'm not somebody who probably, we're, we're a modest group, <laughs> modest group. <laughs> Who we're able to, I think probably the answer is yes, but I think our very survival and the fact we flourish, we don't shout about our audience numbers. We don't mm. make a song and dance about the fact that, you know, we, we how the fact that we are influencing so many millions of people. I think it's, it's let other people decide and say that, I would mm. say. Well, that's a, a marvellously English or English in the old school English sense um, response. Do you ever, have you ever had your mind changed by a guest? Oh, all the time. Really? I mean, constantly. Mm. I mean, constantly. I'm, I, where does the truth lie? Exactly. I mean, we know there are facts. And we know there are things we believe in. We know that there's things that are subjective and there are things that are objective. But often it's hugely hard to work out where the truth lies. I mean, um, and, you know, often we can all say certain things to be, you know, racism is wrong. Apartheid system in South Africa was evil. You know, obviously not when people who lived through the war, the... The, the good and the bad but so many things it's very hard to work out what what the truth is I mean think of today and the coronavirus and the response yeah. to that I mean I, I find myself swinging you know, swinging hugely between the two extremes of why the hell didn't they lock down earlier this is terrible the government should have done more and and the other extreme, which is terrible for business, and they think, you yes. know, two people died on Saturday. Why are we still in semi-lockdown? So I swing, you know, I swing hugely between extremes quite often mm. and try to see both sides of, of the argument because mm. usually there are two sides of the argument, aren't there? Absolutely. I mean, in relation to COVID, one day I'm New Zealand and one day I'm Sweden, as you yes, say. Exactly. It's because Absolutely. it's, you know, people lose either way, don't they? You know, they die or they lose their jobs and then die. So it's, um, it's very hard when we're struggling with a new a new virus and we don't re really know, you know, were they right to lock? Should they have locked down a week earlier or not locked down at all or should they have come out earlier what are the consequences of today we're debating going back to school or not going back to school it's very hard to know what where we are with it isn't it mm, impossible i i don't i'm not keen on this government as you know but i'm i don't envy any government who has to manage this because it is um it just involves so many opposing well weighing impossible things up against each other and you can't really win yes um, 
exactly exactly mm. and how did your work obviously you were ill for several weeks and then you went uh, do you have to physically be in the studio every day at the moment we are operating slightly removed from the studio in the green room uh i mean the six weeks i was off i think i've got the best team in the world and uh who've been there a long time and tim collins and the rest of them i mean did an absolutely brilliant job i always say the show's better when i'm not in um and um yeah but um at the moment the bbc is trying to be quite cautious and we we have seven people in the team and only three of them are allowed in it at any one time and right. we're not even in the studio at the moment we're oper- operating remotely right right and do you think because i know you said in that piece in the new statesman that um that you felt you know creative endeavor the best creative endeavor comes out of proper collaboration and it's hard to do that on zoom and i completely agree with that do you think that the show suffered in any way in the light of the constraints that were placed I on it it's very hard because what people hear is the brilliantly energetic, engaging, informed Jeremy Vine each day out there delivering hopefully brilliant current affairs and debates to the radio to audience. That's what they hear and that's still gone on. And my God, Jer- Jeremy's been amazing to keep that going for the entire period. Mm. In many ways, I think what people hear is pretty much what they expect and most people wouldn't have noticed that much difference. I kind of think the the, the nuance sometimes, the, the what we as a team can deliver, because this is what the presenter can deliver, it, a large amount of that. I mean, clearly, it's the editorial team who decide what we do and how we do it and what the guests and and join up all those dots. But it's Jeremy's delivering it. God, I could write an essay on how much is presented, how much is the editorial team. So much is the presenter. Mm. And then we, but we deliver the rest. So certainly what we deliver is hindered because we're not there as a team. We're not we're not able to the cut and thrust of of debate within the team, the created endeavor, as you quoted me, is not happening to the extent that it used to happen and should be happening. We I, I have to communicate with most of the team just just by telephone or WhatsApp and that's slow and laborious and uh it's it's I just think it it is it is more difficult and we don't quite get the the richness of what we we used to do. But whether people notice is another matter. Mm. So much of I mean Jeremy joins joins it all up and delivers it whatever we give him. But I I think we we probably I I think something is lost a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that particular. I, I wouldn't really know in relation to the Jeremy Vine show, but I certainly do know that I've been doing the um, paper reviews on Sky via Skype since lockdown. And although it's very convenient, it definitely, definitely misses out on the buzz and the chemistry and the all that you get with live studio guests. Um, Jeremy doesn't get. I mean. What he delivers is extraordinary, but what he doesn't get are the guests in the studio, the face mm. to 
based stuff. I mean, as a t even down the line, so many things is, is fairly dodgy phone lines that we do a lot on Facebook or WhatsApp. It's just not the set. The quality of what we deliver in terms of the technical quality isn't as good. Mm. As a team, we go out of our way usually, as you know yourself, to get the guests into the studio because the face-to-face -face interview is always better than something that's yes. delivered remotely. So you lose all those things. You do. And I, I mean, I love, you know, it's kind of a bit of a trek for a few minutes, but I actually love going into the studio because you've got a lovely team and it's always kind of energising and it's fun. And mm. um, yeah, I do think all of that is lost. But you know, all let, that let's... goes and that's before even, you know, right from the very start, we go in early and we start our debates about what happens. And, and you know, there's far fewer as involved. We, we have three in the office and then a few others on Zoom, but it's just not the same. The same uh, creative endeavour as used to happen, I think. Mm. And what time does your working day start usually? And what time do you normally get up? We get in about seven. Oh I'm up God, about wow. six. Wow. Um, and we meet about eight. We have our editorial at eight. Uh, mm. And then the team have to... My guy, my God, I don't know how they do it, but from kind of from quarter to nine onwards, they have to deliver what you then hear on the radio in terms of the, a script, uh, a script for Jeremy, mm -hmm. with the introduction, research notes, two or three guests, lines booked, all of that done just within an hour or two. Amazing. That that's where the magic happens, and then yeah. of course Jeremy, Jeremy adds his magic yeah but the adrenaline you can't I mean I know from working on a daily paper the adrenaline rush of it it's kind of knackering but you can't really beat it can you and no, you can never no. at a normal life you can't do anything at that pace um I find I can't do anything without it without a deadline unless a deadline is that day I find it very difficult to do it which is a bit of a hindrance in exactly life. and in many ways it is quite remarkable that I when I when I I was dreading going back because I just didn't want to go back to this new way of working and mm. uh, I wish I'd been off for a long period of time as well and and but you quickly human beings adapt very quickly and I yes. quickly found that it I think partly because the team are so brilliant and crucially we've been together a long time mm. Jim Johns and another senior producer there he always says the the reason it works is because we're all so used to each other and uh, if if it was a new team, then it wouldn't work as effortlessly as it does at the moment. Uh, so I was quickly struck by just, my God, this we can actually do it this way. You can just do it all remotely with people sitting in their bedsits and, mm. in, you know, wh wherever. In, <laughs> up well, and down yes. the well, I think I think what's been kind of striking um, has been all these companies and organizations saying oh you know we can't uh, we can't do this we can't do that and then overnight the entire global population or kind of instantly everybody who can works from home and all this technology has shifted to home and that's all very very impressive but um it's not much fun and and it's particularly not much fun for the youngsters i mean i think many of us made m many of our friends through work and as you say you've got an established team but i think if you're starting out if you're joining a new team 
very hard to see how you can build how that happened i don't know if you're building a team from scratch or if there's a team of 10 and you just employed two new peoples must be weird for them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i think we're all different you can probably put you know different different stages of our lives i mean i know some people some members of the team who live a long way from london or or have young families for them it's it's been quite a godsend not to have to come in have a long commute and or you know and they they obviously share in child care with their partners uh and for all of us is different a friend one of my colleagues said today he would say the biggest difference is between those with a garden and those Absolutely. without a garden because if you during lockdown yeah if you've got a garden, you're fine. Particularly, we enjoyed all that lovely weather. If you haven't, but you can add to that. People who live in big houses, exactly. With an office and a gym and all the technology. Mm. I mean, I always thought that are we really going to live it? We 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 have to pay for our Wi-Fi now. We have to we have to pay for our office furniture. What happens when our back goes because we haven't mm. got a decent orthopedic chair? Yeah, you know. All these things, let alone our own mental health, people yeah. sort of just living in a very isolated way on their own. Um, yes, I'm not a big fan of it all. No, I I mean, I'm obviously as someone who works from home as a as a writer, I'm kind of used to it. But I'm a I'm an extrovert, so I, I don't find it easy, but I am kind of used to it. But um, I think it's it's not a natural state of affairs for most people. And exactly as you say, it's about your stage of life, really. I moved in with my my partner and we're lucky that he has a lovely house in Northamptonshire with a garden. But I haven't had a garden in the whole of my adult life. So I've had mm. a very different experience of lockdown than I would have had if I'd lived in my flat in London uh, with it which has a shared communal area garden but it's it would have been you know we'd have killed each other by now for a start if we were stuck in that tiny mm -hmm. space so I do think in the long term I hope that I hope that some kind of better balance will will be possible for for people we're not doing too bad because most of us and by September all the team will have some days in the office and some days at home so that Perfect. mix suits some people i mean uh i'd like to tilt the balance back to much more office work but um i don't think that's going to happen i think mm. you know so much has changed isn't it i mean you mentioned the war earlier which my parents generation lived through and this is not world war ii you know this is not, you know, hundreds of millions of people dying, hopefully not. Uh, but it it does affect every single country on the planet, which World War II didn't. Mm, exactly. It does infect every area of our life, mm. which war did do, changes and, in, and um, makes us reassess so many areas of our, of our lives. So it is quite... A how are we really so in in that sense it is it is as far reaching as as a world war and in, mm. in the changes it's going to sweep into our lives i completely agree and i think that um we were 
initially led to believe that it would be a few weeks and it was absolutely obvious that it was eight weeks or something, 11 oh, weeks. yeah incredible we'll get get the covid done basically um and it's not going to be a few weeks and i think there is particularly after the summer and people being able to be outside and mixing in gardens and so on there's a, a kind of slight sense of the storm having passed but unfortunately that's unlikely and this does seem to be um certainly in the medium term um Things are not going to be anything like normal. That's um, true. I mean, like I am, you say medium term, which I think is a good way of looking at it, because I am, I am hopeful, <laughs> be like millions of others, that it, that it will go away. Yeah. <laughs> Wishful thinking is a dangerous thing. Uh, well, well, the, the, the director general of the WHO said on Friday two yes. two years before it starts kind of going, and I felt massively cheered up because I've been I kind of well. instead of Armageddon, and people are working so hard on vaccines and um, viral antivirals and all kinds of different things. I think it's the first time in our lifetime that the whole planet has had one problem that it all wants to solve. I mean, in terms of um, you know, global warming or whatever many people don't really want to solve that and the price of that is too high for lots of other people so let's just hope that that human ingenuity on a mass scale can can do something yes yes it's we'll have to see yeah. but i i would like to find out a bit more about how you got into radio because i know you've worked as a gardener and you worked on a a, a margaret thatcher funded community uh Rural play bus, Yorkshire rural play bus. Uh, I so, I worked for a play bus. That was the most fun I've ever had. That really? Was, that was basically, it's a 60s, 70s thing. These double decker buses were converted into play areas with kind of uh, sand pits and places for painting and a kind of cafes and toilets and things. And uh, that was. Um, and I, I ran one of those and we drove it all over Yorkshire. What areas that didn't have kindergartens or play areas or after school clubs. Mm. So I did that for three years. That was a lot of fun. And what um, about the gardening? When did you do the gardening? Well, after that, um, after play, I worked with Runaway. I came back to my home city, London, and worked mm. with underage runaways which was a similar concept to concept to um refuges for 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 victims of of domestic abuse these was children who ran away and the children the children's society set up this refuge for underage runaways i worked in that for three years and uh that was hard work that that was um made you realize that um Gosh, some some problems in life are really which involve human beings are difficult to yeah. deal with. Uh, children's unhappiness and children mm. running away from horrible, uh, neglectful and abusive situations. Um, so I left that, wanted to do something completely different, and became a gardener, mm. um, and ruined a lot of people's lawns and. <laughs> that sort of thing and uh 
and then I reached 30 and thought, well, I better think of something I can do for the rest of my life. And that's why I trained to be a journalist and ended up at the BBC and have been there, as I say, for the last 30 years. And where, where did you, how did you train to be a journalist? Did you do a course or did you work I in a local paper? I did a course because it's, the brilliant thing about journalism is that you don't need to be, you don't need a qualification, do you? Yeah, that's I didn't, cool. I've never studied any journalism in my life no, before. No, but, but I think if you're, if you've done, if you've worked for the best part of 10 years and are kind of feeling a way forward and think, I wouldn't mind a bridge and um, these commercial publishers, read business publishing, were often offering a four-month training course. And I thought that's a nice bridge for me where I can kind of get the get the basics of journalism and see and see whether I like it and see whether I'm any good at it and and hopefully get a job at the end of it, which is what happened. Mm. And I think you you went to a comprehensive school. Were yeah. you shocked by how dominated the BBC is or was by privately educated people? Pretty much so. I mean, yeah. certainly you add to that Oxbridge as well. Yeah. Uh, and the number of senior managers and presenters. I mean, I I think the BBC still what was it greg dyke called it hideously white yes well it's it is still hid and it is probably it is still hideously white in certain places um but it's hideously middle class and hideously upper middle class exactly i'm so glad you said that phil because i think i think he's i remembered him saying hideously white and middle class maybe he just said hideously white but um, i'm so glad you mentioned that because people always say middle class as if private school oxbridge means middle class private school is seven percent of the population and i was really shocked when i worked in the arts before i um went into journalism I went into journalism when I was 39 and worked at the Indy which wasn't isn't a particularly posh paper but I was shocked by how many people kind of introduced other people to do work experience because they were related to people or uh, friends mm-hmm. of people and also um yes how many were private school Oxbridge but that's not you know that's that is upper middle class I mean that's a tiny percentage but they dominate the media as they do all the other power institutions and let's let's spell it out because diversity is important not just because it's right we don't we don't just want black and asian and ethnic minority people working for the bbc because it's the right thing to do but it's also because everybody pays for the bbc but it's also probably most important of all it's because i don't know what it's like to be a young black person in this country or to come from a different type of background and that and good journalism is about having all those perspectives feeling into what we try and understand that's happening in the world at the moment and unless you've got all those different perspectives on from race and class and everything else then you don't you don't deliver that that that, that wonderful range of of analysis and perspective that we're supposed to be doing. Mm. Couldn't agree more. But the trouble with, well, there are so many troubles with journalism, but one of them is that newspapers are largely owned by billionaires with very uh, particular agendas, um, white, male, ageing, 
very, very rich men. And uh, strangely, they're not particularly pro-EU or Labour governments or because that's not where their interest lies. So we have a, a hugely skewed print media, which is also unfortunately dying. And then we have um, a national broadcasting body, which is uh, funded by the taxpayer, I hope will continue to be funded by the taxpayer, and is its job, its job literally, apart from to entertain and educate, is to be neutral, is to not shove agendas down people's throats. Do you think, I know you have to tread quite carefully in relation to this, because there have been very clear moves with the current government and certain people in it uh, that have not been encouraging, although possibly slightly less discouraging at the moment than they were even a few weeks ago. Mm. Do you think the future of public broadcasting is safe? I hope so. I mean, I seriously hope so. I heard Jeremy Hunt, who obviously lost the, the Conservative leadership, to Boris Johnson, I heard him saying that it's a very cheap way of selling up the country in the within the world and spreading our influence. Mm. Um, and it hugely is. And not, I I understand if the fact that you know, the licence fee is still a lot of money for some people and uh, some people don't bother listen or watch or in, go online with the BBC, although that, I mean, most people still do, even for a short period of time. Um, it's what's, as as is sometimes said, what's a, it may not be, if you had to come up with a way of funding uh, and servicing public sector broadcasting, you might not come up with it may not be the best way in the world, but is there a better way, really? And mm. it's lasted so long because it does actually work. And I, I've i got not much time for people from on the right and the left who think it's biased. Mm. I think, it, you know, there's a... we. I mean, we've talked about diversity, and I think there is bias there because it's so middle class. And I think... In, in many ways, um, I I think the the range of the BBC output is so wide. People who attack it usually are just listening to one segment of it. Are they Are they listening to one extra? Yeah. Are they even listening to to Radio Two? Are they You know, they might. They're probably just catching um, some I don't know, news night or something. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. I don't want to. Put, I don't want to speculate too much, but I think across the range, it's a very healthy, wide range of political output. And I don't think it is. I think it genuinely, I've never met anyone who doesn't go out, any news journalist who doesn't go out of their way to deliver something that is impartial and neutral and mm. try to genuinely try to educate and inform the audience about what's going on from an unbiased perspective. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And and uh, it's, when you were talking about it's kind of, it's not perfect, but it's the best system we have. It reminded me of the Churchill quote about democracy, that it's a terrible system. Yes, but it's, exactly. Uh, but, you know, apart from all the others that have been tried. And people um, tend to, the, the problem is people tend to attack it when they hear things they don't agree with i mean yes. I, I tend to cheer when i hear you know we i i want to hear people i disagree with you mentioned that earlier 
Mm. You know, who boring just to read newspapers and magazines and radio interviews with people that you agree with. I mean, let 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 a, a thousand flowers flourish. What was the yes exactly <laughs> phrase which was yeah. <laughs> we never put it never put into practice, but. You know, we, we want we want to hear a wide range of views, don't we? I mean, it's certainly something I try to do on the Jeremy Vine show. You do it brilliantly. And uh, and and I also think the other thing is that uh, part of the anger in much of the world, but certainly in the last few years in the UK and the US has probably had something to do with people feeling as though their voices haven't been heard certain sectors of society feeling that and one thing that a a phone-in show does is you know it it gives anyone the opportunity to have their voice heard and that that is in a way is a kind of public service in its own right isn't it I hope so I hope so yes and do you think because when we think about the in a way the rivals to both print journalism and radio broadcast media which are of course the the, the giants the silicon valley giants facebook etc and we know what that has done to democracy and it look, certainly looks as though that played a big part in trump and mm. quite possibly a big part in brexit and we think it's extremely likely that the russians interfered but our government doesn't want to um, investigate that so <laughs> we won't find out but um how worried are you in the light of that about both the kind of future of the media and the future of democracy because they are quite closely entwined aren't they i don't know i really don't know i mean i i'm i'm an optimist and i think you know, in many ways, as you suggested just then, a lot of it is a sense of people feeling alienated and being left behind and um, and not feeling that what hearing their their voices heard, you know. And I think in many ways I we talked about COVID and Nick and extremes there i feel the same about brexit uh i was as liberal and metropolitan at times it's a terrible thing now i think it's a bloody brilliant thing when i saw them all squabbling about not being able to come up with a uh, i shouldn't say this because this is make me seem biased but i'm not but i'm just showing that my views are open and changing all the time that's what i'm really trying to say not not that and when i saw them all squabbling they couldn't even get some multi-hundred billion, million, um, billion, wasn't it, COVID settlement together to help the European Union. I thought, thank God we're not part of those squabbling nations anymore. And maybe it was right. Maybe Brexit was going to be a good thing and we're all going to flourish outside the European Union and but remain good Europeans. So that just, there you hear, you heard it. For BBC people can be very pro-Brexit. <laughs> I want to be open. I want to hear. Yes. I want to believe that um, there are different views we can embrace. We can change our minds and 
And I hope everybody should be doing that all the time. I agree. I completely agree. I, I've written columns. I've re- reread columns I've written and thought I don't agree with a word of that. Who wrote that? <laughs> you know? I think if you're not changing your mind all the time, you you you, you know you you must you be. Haven't got a mind to change. Yeah, haven't got a mind to change. Exactly. You can't be alive. You must have switched mm. off. And I do think you know that's one of the things that worries me about the 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 new media where where you're. Um, content is all served up to you uh, through your mm. particular lens and Echo your ideological chamber, preferences. Yeah. I do that worries me a lot because they, you know, having worked exactly, on a paper yeah. for all those years, I think people I used to sit down and read kind of eighty pages of a packaged bundle of a newspaper every day which had lots of different points of view in it because you know my paper was literally meant to be the independent but I think now people are consuming so much of their news and comment through a very particular lens and narrow channel and mm, an echo chamber yes just hearing voices that confirm what they already believe I think that is sad that probably is pause for thought for all of us and but again as you said suggested earlier there's one reason why we need the bbc and we need independent impartial voices louder than ever yes yes and you what are the what do the youngsters on your team um because i imagine quite a lot of their contemporaries are not really listening to all that much mainstream radio or watching that much mainstream tv what are their views about the kind of future of broadcast I don't know. Interesting question. I mean, they buy in totally to what we do. And I know those who have friends who think that the BBC is some left-wing conspiracy and then others who think it's some right-wing conspiracy get bruised and battered sometimes by hearing those opinions. Um, When as they know the the young journalists themselves know that all they're trying to do is be as fair and even-handed and in, impartial as as BBC journalists are supposed to be. Because mm. mm. it, it's almost like you know, it's almost there's almost a feeling that you have to have a trigger warning now if you're going to be exposed to a view that isn't your own, which is you know obviously an extreme, but it is a bit worrying because that seems to be the case with identity politics now and. Um, I wonder how far the BBC can go in kind of combating that because up to a point, you know, everybody's a victim of fashion, Mm. aren't they? I mean, do you have any thoughts? It's a very fine line, but do you have any thoughts on that? I think think probably (laughs) it's a subject I don't even want to mention, (laughs) Uh, uh, which is trans, really. And I think you do really i mean young people on the team don't don't know what the fuss is about don't understand why older people just don't embrace it the way younger people do and and just see it just see it in the way we might see prejudice against other groups uh but then there are people like my wife who was growing up as very strong feminists and then they see feminists in the media who who were absolute heroes to them over the years being castigated and attacked in a way that they find brutal yeah i mean i do want to sit on the fence on this issue because i I think we all need to a little bit and hear what everybody says but really is an example of of 
one side not listening to the other side and and a lack of i mean at the end of the day we should respect hum, we should respect all human beings what their sexual orientation or or whatever um and it does come down to that i i, I don't know i'm getting in deep water but i do think it it that that see that really does divide our young journalists and our slightly older journalists on yes. the team. Yes. Well, I interviewed Suzanne Moore for my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she's mm. obviously very, very caught up in this whole thing and very bruised by it. Actually, it's um, it's, it's mm. difficult because it's it's because I think people just need to show a bit more respect to other side and hear what they're saying. Really, I, I love the fact that um, the show has in the past been uh, you've. You, um, been broadcast live from Burma. You've tackled themes like what makes us human. Incredibly ambitious. Do you hope that you'll be able to? I mean, you're still obviously ambitious on a, on a daily basis, but would you hope to do some of that kind of uh, of thing well, what, again? What makes us human is still going strong. We still do. We've got. I can't remember the name. We've got this brilliant uh, Italian astronaut who who's doing it for us tomorrow oh fantastic i didn't realize that how amazing still we still do two a month and oh, fantastic. we're hoping a book that the book comes out next year there's a plug right. um so that's as that's still going strong mm. uh it was a sort of i'm probably most proud of all the things we've done i'm most proud of that as as a for as a radio format that kind of works because I was looking for something that allowed Jeremy to be... Jeremy's brilliant with his news journalism and his political journalism and the energy and excitement he brings to stories. But I was looking for a way of giving him something around the more long-format interview when he can be slightly more reflective. And he, I think some of the best interviews he does are for What Makes Us Human. I think we've done about 150 of them now. Whether we will still be broadcasting from other parts of the world i doubt very much i mean that's a financial thing and we just bbc just doesn't have the money mm. i mean those that think the bbc can still deliver all the stuff it it used to i mean it it just it 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 can't anymore it doesn't i love the way that everybody wants to save money and as soon as the BBC identifies areas that it wants to, it thinks not many people, you know, years ago it was Six Museum or CFAX or something, something that red button or something that not many people seem to be bothering about. There's an enormous reaction. No, I love that. That's my favourite part of the BBC. And then there's a huge campaign to save it, you know, which, which always makes me laugh slightly because i think that it shows that every bit of it somebody loves and somebody mm. wants and it and that just with so with you know the bbc isn't isn't going to have as much money as it used to have and he does does have to say it reminds me of them um, do you watch w1a i don't because oh, i it find is? it too painful <laughs> 
I watched very little telly actually. But I, I found it absolutely hilarious, and they had they had the scene where um, or a, a, a theme of um, cuts having to be made, and then it turned out that that included brass, some ancient brass band or something, and some senior exec, some big cheese in the organisation had somebody in their family who was keen on on brass bands. I mean, it was just you know kind of yeah, classically ridiculous. Use, but Radio as well. Two had a brass band program called Listen to the Band. I think. I think I'm right in saying that went, but there were probably huge objections when that was cut. Yeah. Probably had a tiny audience. Because if you love brass bands, you want to listen to that. Yes. And you expect <laughs> a public broadcaster to deliver that to you. Yeah. And it, yeah. it it's just pause to think about it. Some of the, the, for the middle class audience, if you're middle class and you're getting BBC Two, uh, channel, a uh, B. BBC Four, you listen to Radio Four and you get BB, you listen to Radio Three, you are being super served. Those channels and those programmes cost a vast amount of money. The All those BBC orchestras cost a vast amount of money. Mm. And it it's a middle class audience being super served by, by that. You know, and if you are somebody who, who you can understand why it's difficult for the BBC to justify the because be the the, the licensee because if you're somebody who spends a fortune on on Sky and has all the sport and the film channels and barely watches the BBC, then you think, why am I paying all that money when I'm paying all that to Sky instead? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, you sound broadly optimistic or hopeful. At I'm always optimistic. <laughs> Um, no, I'm I'm always optimistic. I kind of think we will come through this. We'll come through it as I'm watching Boris Johnson and thinking he is, you know, what we were saying earlier about swinging between doing this and doing that. You can yeah. see he's there as well, isn't Definitely. he? I mean, Definitely. It very cautious and sceptical and, uh, then he got it and nearly died and he came out of it and then and and then he thought we better move on and open things up and get business and enterprise going again and now he's realizing actually we can't afford to have a second wave so he's struggling it with it we're all struggling mm. with it but hopefully we will come through hopefully we will come through and if you were to pick one thing that you would hope for as a result of this pandemic what would that be well, I think we we talked about we we talked about listening to alternative views and not just just attacking something just because you disagree with it, just attacking a point of view, whoever it might be, whether it's whether you you you're a conservative and you hate metropolitan liberal views or the other way round, just. It, I just hope that people are, will be prepared to listen to a different perspective and a different view. And, um, you know, I think that's something we should all take on board. Mm. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Thanks so much, Phil. Um, I hope to see you back in the studio one day. That would be oh, nice. Well, we hope to see you back, yes. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. And if you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart. This is the last episode in the current season, but I hope you'll join me for the next one later in the autumn. In the meantime, here's to work that works for all of us. Oh, and a vaccine, of course. <laughs>